0: So today we continue our study of the book of James as we look at James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. And in this passage, James meets head on the way we make distinctions between people and the way in which we show favoritism based upon our own prejudices. You know, I really headed into this passage thinking that what we would talk about today is the scourge of prejudice and racism in our culture. The fact that it's wrong, that it's harmful really to everyone, that it is sinful and has no place in our society today. What I discovered as God opened up this passage to me though, is that we, the church, his people, those who are called by his name, need to clean up our house first. This passage does not talk about the problem of prejudice in our culture. It addresses these issues in the church. In this place. So let's read this scripture together. If you'll follow along with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because freedom without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father, open these scriptures to us today. Father, may we be beyond hearers of the word. May we take it and do something with it in our life. May as you stir us today for change, we be changed. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's dig into this passage. I apologize, I don't have lots of jokes. We just want to dig in. First, we see in verse 1 the command here. The command, don't show favoritism. Now, as we've established in previous weeks, this letter was written to Christians, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And James reiterates that as this chapter begins when he says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is clearly making sure that we realize that his teaching is consistent with the Christian faith. As in the entire letter, James is saying that the Christian faith is to be expressed in right behavior. Now this first verse of chapter 12 ties into the two verses at the end of chapter 1 that Andy shared with us last week. When it says that true religion is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see, it is true, if it is true that religion... That entails visiting the destitute it leaves no room for favoritism we can't choose those to whom we minister to favoritism is simply this judgment without mercy judgment without mercy prejudice a word that is often used in our culture today is two words really just pushed together to pre-judge to pre-judge To discriminate between people is inconsistent with the Christian faith, James says. It is to give the respect of persons that Scripture clearly does not condone. It is inconsistent with the Christian life to show favoritism and prejudice. Now this is not a new problem, lest we think that this is just in our culture today. We can see that even early Christians struggled with this. In Acts 10, in Galatians 3, in Romans 2 we discover that the relationship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers is strained because of preconceived notions about each other. Even the apostles got in on the argument and came down on both sides of it and struggled with it. In Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, we see a passage written to masters and their slaves. What was happening in the early church is that both of these groups of people were coming to Christ. And we're actually sitting in worship together. The struggle was, what would their relationship now be that they were brothers in Christ? And in Luke 9, Jesus' disciples, in front of Jesus, in front of him, get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. Now, if you're going to argue about which one is the greatest, I would submit that you not do it in front of Jesus. But they did. Struggling with prejudging one another, with showing favoritism to one another. Showing judgment without mercy. The answer to this typically human problem was and is simple. For in many passages in Scripture, such as Romans 2, verse 11, the same statement is made. God does not show favoritism. It's pretty simple, isn't it? But how often has the church ignored these passages? Romans 12, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 3 tells us, To not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Not that any of us have ever done that. Jesus himself in John 7 verse 24 says, Stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgment. Stop judging by mere appearances. It is inconsistent with the Christian faith. If we are to say that we are believers and followers in Jesus Christ, then we are not to judge. We are not to prejudge individuals by outward appearances. We are not to show favoritism one over another. That is the command. And next, James shows a practical example and he tells a story. A hypothetical story that puts a face to his point. And in this story, two men enter the assembly. One is obviously rich, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and the other is obviously poor and wearing shabby clothes. but one is shown special attention and given a good seat. And the other is told, well, go stand over there, or if you must sit, sit down here on the floor. This is a very obvious picture of favoritism. So clearly judgmental and based on outward appearance and status, isn't it? Certainly, nothing like this would ever happen at New Life Church. But I believe that each of us have something within us that instinctively leans towards self-assertion. We desire to find the spot where we can stand and defend ourselves and never give up. It is really the struggle of the natural man. That part of us that is our life before we become Christ followers. It is a struggle for the natural man for self-justification. That we must prove ourselves. Make ourselves look good. Make ourselves needed. Make ourselves appreciated by others. Most of the time, the reality is that we find this approval and this self-justification only in comparing ourselves with others. And often, that includes condemning and judging others. If your personality is like mine, you struggle with people-pleasing. And so, part of our, our, our walk is trying to make sure that we're not doing everything based upon what somebody else will think of us and making ourselves look good in somebody else's eyes. In James' scenario, the one finding the seats for these two men, so ushers, perk up here. This is you. That's a joke. Thank you for getting it. Thanks, Fred. The one finding the seats for these two men, I think, is trying to make himself possibly look good by saying, oh, please, come sit by me. Others will see you sitting by me and think I have some relationship with you and be very impressed with me. And oh, you... Uh, let's see, how about over there? How about you just stand up against the wall or, or better yet, sit on the floor where nobody will notice you because I certainly won't want anyone to think you're with me. How many of us make ourselves feel better by comparing ourselves to others? Of course, when we do compare ourselves to others, we always do that comparison with people that we feel are below us somehow below us in social standing, in education, in appearance, even in race. You see, we're each so much better than those people, aren't we? One way that we do this today, I believe, is name-dropping. Making sure that people know that we know someone important. We somehow feel that we will look better in others' eyes if they will know that we are associated with the important, with somebody who has celebrity someone who has money or status. We make sure others know where we shop, what restaurants we frequent, where our children go to school, the area of the city that we live in. And even without realizing it, we are comparing, believing that we are bringing ourselves up higher in the eyes of others. Oh, and oh yes, that seating part, could it possibly happen in this place? Well, as I was studying for this message, Claude Davis shared with me. Claude Davis is our uh, director of spiritual formation and works with all our guest services, also, along with Anne Marie. And told me that we've heard of three instances here at New Life in the past couple of months where people have been asked to move to another location in the room because that's my seat. In one of those occasions, the family left the building before the celebration began, saying they would never return. How sad and how sinful. Let me remind everyone in here that these seats get taken up every week, and it's probably not the same seat you sat in last week anyway. So the indentation of your big rear isn't in it. (laughs) May we never be known as a place where someone cannot come into this room and sit wherever they please. And not be told that they are sitting in your seat. Or in your parking place. Someone asked me once, why don't we have parking spaces for the pastors? Because we're just fellow ministers. We just happen to have a different part in the kingdom than you do. Last time I checked, we didn't need a special parking place to do our job in the kingdom. May this never be a place where we give preference and favoritism to anyone based on how they look, where they sit, how much money they've got, where they live, where their children go to school, where they shop, or whether they are just like us. Because frankly, I want those people in this place. My mother would say I just went to Medlin, but anyway. <laughs> Romans twelve sixteen says this, Do not be wise in your own conceits. Don't be wise in your own conceits. All you're doing is essentially lying to yourself when you show favoritism and judge others by any non-biblical prejudicial standard. Then he gives them some important reminders. James says, if this story isn't enough to kind of get your understanding, then let me give you some reminders. And he brings up these important points of consideration that the people in the churches can relate to. He says in verse 4, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The word used here for discriminated, or as it says in the authorized version, been partial to comes from the same verb that we see in chapter 1, verse 6, that that is translated blown and tossed. What James is saying here is that you're not stable in your walk with Christ if you show favoritism. Through their partiality, the offenders have wavered in their faith. And James reminds them that they have become judges with evil thoughts. Their evaluation of others was based on sinful attitudes. Thomas Akempis, who lived in the 15th century, said this, listen carefully. This is the highest and most profitable lesson, truly to know and to despise ourselves. To have no opinion of ourselves and to think always well and highly of others is the greatest wisdom and perfection. Never think that you have made any progress till you look upon yourself as inferior to all. Now, does this mean that we are to be full of self doubt and self loathing and struggle with our self esteem? Not at all. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus explains this process of self awareness when he says, Whoever wants to become great among you, you must be the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave. To all. Jesus' point is this. The greatest will be the one that is the servant. The one that is the minister. Often around New Life we ask, how many ministers are there at New Life? The goal is that every one of us can raise our hand and say that we are a minister in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because we strive to be a servant. With no partiality that would keep us from ministering to someone because of our prejudging Evaluation of them. You know, there's a trap I think we can easily fall into even in the church today. Listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian of the early 20th century. Every cult, he says, every cult of personality that emphasizes the distinguished qualities, virtues, and talents of another person, even though these be of an altogether spiritual nature, is worldly and has no place in the Christian community. Indeed, it poisons the Christian community. The church today has fallen into this cult of personality. We have Christian celebrities. It is a cult of personality. When you say things like, well, I like that speaker or that worship leader better than that other one. Well, I can only be ministered to by so-and-so. I really like it when so-and-so sings. I only go to, I'll go to that small group that so-and-so leads, but not that one. Because I, I just don't get anything from them. Then we are showing favoritism that damages the community and displeases God. He gives a second reminder. In verse 5, Listen, my brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Jesus came to to minister to and to preach the gospel to the poor. According to Matthew 11, he meets up with a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist asks him, How do I know that you're the Messiah? One of Jesus' responses is, I have come to preach the gospel to the poor. You see, the economy of God's kingdom is backwards. The poor are truly the rich. The first shall be last. We find true life when we die to ourselves. It's a backwards economy. Here, James reminds us that the poor on earth are those that are rich in faith and those who love Christ and who will inherit the kingdom. James is reminding these people, why are you putting the poor man in shabby clothes over to the side. This is, this is the one who the kingdom is built upon. This is the man who is rich in faith. In all likelihood, the rich person who had come into this assembly was not even part of the body of Christ, and the poor man was. And yet he was pushed off to the side. And James says, what, what are you doing? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich? The third reminder comes in verse 6. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? The word exploiting here means exploiting in both attitude and shameful treatment. Now in that day, the majority of the church, these new Christians, were poor. And the rich Roman rulers, the powerful government officials and religious leaders, regularly treated the poor, especially Christians, with contempt They would even go as far as taking them to court knowing that they had absolutely no money and no way of paying the debt. James is saying, you've insulted the poor. Isn't it the the rich among you? Isn't it the rich ones in your culture who are exploiting you? The ones who are dragging you to court and that's who you're giving preference to? That's who you're showing favoritism toward? The fourth reminder comes in verse 7. Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, what was happening was this wasn't just discrimination and favoritism toward a rich person or a wealthy person or a a high-standing person. James says, no, this is slander. These are ones who slander the noble name of Jesus Christ. The word slander here in the Greek is blasphemo. Sound familiar? You see, the word used here actually means a step beyond common slander and means to blaspheme, to speak evil against God himself. James says, is it these rich people that you wish to give a special place so that you can feel good about yourselves? Those people, the ones who take you to court, the ones who blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ, those, those people... That's who you're giving preference to. Am I right here? Then James calls his readers to complete obedience in verses 8 through 11. And he brings up this idea of the royal law found in Scripture. The royal law. This idea of royal law simply means that the law that is truly loyal, royal in its quality It is royal and kingly in relation to all others. Here James refers back to the great commandment found in Matthew 22. Love your neighbor as yourself. Along with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says in Matthew 22 that on these hang all the law and the prophets. Now this is not the law of the Mosaic Code. This is the royal law of love found in the command of Matthew 22. And James says if you really want to keep this law of love, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. If you'll focus on that, then you will be doing right. Partiality, favoritism, James says, represses genuine love. Now he kind of gives them a break in verse 10. Beginning in verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it. The word stumble or offends here. James says, for the sake of argument, we're going to award the party who has sinned pure motives. Granting that the sin appears accidental. They stumble, but it is no less sinful. So he says, okay, you've accidentally stumbled, you've, you've broken this commandment. But he says, you're guilty of all. You're guilty of all. Because you've stumbled in this one point. Now some have said, as we've discussed in the introduction to James several weeks ago, that James contradicts Paul by teaching that salvation is by works and not by faith. That Paul clearly teaches that salvation comes by grace through faith. And that James somehow seems to be saying, well, if you're a good person, if you have all the right deeds, then that is the way to Christ. But here we see that this supposed contradiction is just not there. This phrase shows James to be teaching the exact opposite of salvation by works. Salvation is by grace only. And James confirms this. He says, if by sinning in one area we're guilty of all, then how can works save? You see, it becomes like dominoes. One goes and then the rest fall. If James were truly teaching that salvation is by works and the good things that we do and how good we are, then he could easily here say, well, you know this favoritism thing? I know you're, you know you're blowing that. But look at all these other things you've got going for you. No, James says the opposite. You're showing favoritism within the body. You're guilty of all of these. And since men are guilty before God, according to Romans 3, salvation must be by grace through faith. James' point is this in verse 11. No matter how far off the mark you are, you still miss the mark. In middle school, I had a science teacher that would tell a story all the time to try to get a point across. Of course, like everything that was said to me in middle school, all I remember is the story and not the point. He used to say if you jump off the top of one building and you're jumping from the top of this building to the top of the next and you miss by an inch, you're still, you've still missed. You are still just as dead at the bottom of the building as you would have been had you missed by a foot. For those of you who are basketball fans, the last time I checked, you don't get partial credit for a ball that goes around the rim several times and then falls off to the side. It still doesn't go in. You still miss the mark. You don't get any more points for a basket that misses by an inch than if you were off by a yard. And James says that here. Just because you think, well, this thing, this partiality thing, this favoritism thing, okay, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of in the background and that's cool. It's not as bad as murder though. Well, at least I didn't commit adultery. James says, no, no. If you're off in one area, you're guilty of all. Partiality is just as much a sin in God's eyes as murder. And we have to understand that. James finishes off this section of the letter by reiterating the command in verses 12 through 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The verb in verse 12, speak and act, those two verbs, are in the present tense. Which means, literally it means to continue speaking, continue acting, continue doing. Let this be a lifestyle. That you speak and act always in this way. As though you are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The verb tense of the word judged here has an immediacy to it. It means about to be. Christians are to conduct themselves as if judgment may come at any moment. But the stimulus for this is not out of a harsh, merciless court, but out of the law that gives freedom. That same law that assures that we are free from the bondage of sin. Now, am I saying that we are told to overlook the sins of a fellow believer? Absolutely not. Quite the contrary. We are called in other passages of Scripture to restore a brother who has sinned. And it's to be done in a manner that is filled with mercy and care for the one that is caught in the sin. We are told to have the same attitude, not a judgmental attitude, not a superior attitude, or an attitude of favoritism towards someone because their sin is either low on our chart or high on our chart. We are told to restore them with the same attitude of brotherly love and mercy. One of the greatest ways we can show love to a brother or sister in Christ is to restore them. To confront the sin in a caring, loving way and then restore them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the worst things we can do is to ignore it and allow someone to continue to fall away from God. What we see here in this passage is not a caring, merciful pulling of a brother or sister back into a relationship but we see partiality in judging based on self-centered motives and preconceived judgments. Mercy is simply that gift given to us of love, care, and forgiveness when we don't deserve it. This is basic to Christian living, to the Christian message. It is all about mercy, for Christ showed us mercy. James' case here is very strong in that he says it is impossible for a true believer not to have and show mercy. Why? Because we are those who have been shown mercy by Jesus Christ himself. And we are to show mercy to others in our daily living. He finishes off this passage by saying, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you have known the grace of God and have accepted Christ's mercy to save you and bring you into a relationship with Him, then you will be mercy showers, James says. If we have truly accepted Jesus Christ and have allowed His mercy to pour into our lives, you and I will be mercy showers. If you don't have mercy and care toward others, then friend, today... You need to look inward and determine whether you truly have received the mercy of God into your life. How would this church be different if each one of us showed mercy at every opportunity? Opportunities abound daily to show mercy instead of partiality. For the last time I checked, each one of us needs forgiveness and understanding every day. Opportunities abound. Look at your daily walk with other Christians as being another chance to show God's mercy rather than another chance to prejudge and show favoritism and prejudice. The sin of partiality may show up in your life as racism, as prejudice. It may show up in trying to make yourself appear better than you really are. Maybe it shows itself in giving preference to one person over another. Creating a cult of personality. Whatever it may be, James says it must stop. It is inconsistent with saying that we are a Christian church. A group of people called by Christ's name. Many years ago, one of the first scripture passages I memorized was Romans 12 that we looked at earlier. Let me remind you what verse 3 says. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. James is saying, let's look inward at ourselves and stop looking outwardly at other people. For only then can we really take the next step in the Christian walk, can we truly restore one another to right relationships with Jesus Christ. But if we're so caught up in making ourselves look good, in coming up with some idea that people, some people are not as good as us, that are far less than us, we will never reach the world for Jesus Christ. And we will never fulfill the prayer of Jesus for unity within his body. That's the challenge for us today.